Hello and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and as always, I am joined by Hugh Osborne and Andrew Rushby. And as we mentioned in the last episode, Exocast 48B, we will be doing a different thing for 2021. We will be alternating each month between a discussion for the three of us answering a question in Exoplanet Science and a invite of an expert guest onto our show to interview them about the work that they do in exoplanets. But with every month, we will be bringing you the news. And the way that we're going to do that, instead of listing out every single planet that's been discovered, characterised, and astrobiology study on the planet, what we're going to do is we're each going to take a single paper from that month and discuss it in detail and start a discussion on some of these pieces of work that people are putting out there into the exoplanet literature. So for Exocast 48C, that is what we are ready to do. Who wants to kick us off with the first paper? Hugh, how about you? Sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to talk about a paper from uh, Matthias Novak, uh, which came out in November. And it's called The Direct Confirmation of the Radial Velocity Planets Beta Pictoris C. Um, so I think it's important to, to note that you know each detection method that we use... Uh, normally has its own niche. You know, when we think about transits, we think about close-in multi-planet systems that Kepler and Tess have found, and maybe some hot Jupiters found by WASP. Uh, when we think about radial velocity planets, we think about, you know, also those kind of close-in super-Earths, but maybe um, Jupiter-like planets around bright stars as well. And when we think of directly imaged planets, we tend to think of a population of almost brown dwarfs that are ridiculously far from their star, uh, which are very young um, and that kind of compartmentalization between directly imaged planets and the rest, that has really changed after this paper, um, thanks to the ESO gravity team. So gravity is this instrument which uses interferometry between four of the world's biggest telescopes, ESO's uh, very large telescopes, or VLTs, in Chile. And it combines their light and their resolving power into basically a super telescope between the four of them. Um, and... You know, typically gravity is, has previously been used to reveal stars that orbit ridiculously close to their to our galaxy's supermassive black hole, and this actually helped um, the team that, that that used gravity to the, the twenty twenty Nobel Prize in Physics uh, just earlier last year. Um, and it's even been used to look at uh, known directly imaged planets before, such as Beta Pic B, uh, the other bigger planet in the system that we're talking about here and the HR8799 system as well and it can do this because it's got this incredible resolution if you have a 100 meter telescope that means you can look far closer to a star for a planet than you could if you had a one meter telescope for example um, and so that means that that gravity is able to separate the light from the star and the planet and um, observe the planet itself without the influence of the starlight and um, but yeah, so in this paper, Matthias Novak and collaborators went one step further. So not just pointing at a known um, directly imaged planet, they pointed these four VLT telescopes at a planet that had never been seen in directly imaged light before. So that, that had only ever been postulated through radial velocities. Um, and they found it, right? So that planet was Beta Pic C, 
And this was actually discovered in 2018 by an RV team that used the HARP spectrograph in Lucia. Uh, and it's a giant planet about 8.5 times larger than Jupiter. Uh, but it orbits its star in about a quarter of Jupiter's orbit, so uh, once every three years or so. And a semi-major axis, so a distance between the planet and the star, of less than half that of Jupiter. And the precision of the measurement that um, gravity took is, is crazy. So this planet only ever moves about 0.12 arc seconds from its star, uh, which might not mean anything to you but that's um that's something like being able to distinguish two leds on a christmas tree from 100 kilometers away and the team were able to pinpoint its position to something like 150 micro arc seconds so that's the equivalent of from 100 kilometers away being able to know the position of that led on the christmas tree to the width of a human hair right that's absolutely incredible when you think of that 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 wow. scale of measurement. And that means that even though we're 10 parsecs away from this star, uh, they were able to see the, the change in the position of the planet over just a month. So just a month between observations, they saw the planet drift around on its orbit. Um, and not only did they the, were they able to constrain the orbit of this planet, they were also able to get a spectra um, because they were imaging in the infrared and they were able to split the colours of the, um, the light up into... 50 different bins they didn't really find anything in the spectra there was it was just a kind of flat line um it is still impressive and it did enable them to get a, a good measure of the luminosity and therefore radius of the planet um and these pro- these pl- parameters actually allow um the team to test some planet formation models um so depending on how planets start that can influence how they appear and how big or bright they are after a few million years. And in this case, it seems like beta pick C fits pretty well with the core accretion model, um, rather than this gravitational instability model, which is suggesting that planets formed like like stars form, uh, which might be possible for large planets. But in these ca- in this case, it seems like it formed from the bottom up from small particles in in the disk around beta beta pick. Um, so. Um, by measuring beta pick C's position, they were able to transform what previously was just a mass uh, m sine i estimate from from radial velocities, which is effectively mass times by the angle at which the planet is is um, orbiting. Uh, they were able to turn this into a direct mass, uh, settling on a value of about 8.6 Jupiter masses. But also in a weird way, this mass was able to constrain the um, the mass of the outer companion, which was previously measured through astrometry using Gaia and Hipparchos. Um, by knowing how much the star moves due to the inner companion, they were able to re-estimate the mass from astron- astrometry, which was previously something like 11 plus or minus 2 Jupiter masses. And actually, it turns out that um, the outer planet is a lot less massive than was thought, so it's only about 9 Jupiter masses, uh, making beta pick B and C kind of similar-sized siblings instead of you know one big planet, one small planet. Um, so directly imaging a known RV planet, that was always going to be the next step forward in terms of exoplanet imaging, but it actually, it really shocked me just how quickly that milestone has arrived. You know, I thought we'd have to wait for the Roman Space Telescope at the end of the 2020s to be able to do this. Um, so the fact that it happened in, in 2020, the very start of this decade, is, is really kind of, it really shows the power of interferometry and shows that the future might arrive quicker than we think, right? And I hope that gravity can shock us in the future again. Um, by imaging more of these. Yeah, so we actually see the the use of gravity. Again, this week, a paper came out where they used gravity to look at the PDS-70 system. So if you if people remember PDS-70, also a directly imaged planet, the star also has a disk, very much like Beta Pick, 
and they managed to get uh, images of PDS-70C. So there's two planets in that system as well. So remarkably similar, and gravity, again, has given us some great spectra of that. So this is super exciting, and there's so much more that we need to learn from these. One of the things that I really liked about this, and you highlighted it really well, is the masses of these planets, and the fact that we can use the measurements of their luminosity, how bright they are, their masses, their effect on the central star, to understand how they might have formed and this has been a really big question for these directly imaged planets because normally they're much much more massive than Jupiter these ones are actually relatively small for directly imaged planets at around eight to nine Jupiter masses and it's not certain at which point you would form a planet via gravitational instabilities which is the same way that a star forms And it was thought that some of these massive ones must form that way. But this is, again, evidence that, no, we can form giant planets from this bottom-up process in the same way that, you know, we form Jupiter and we see evidence in our solar system. All of our planets formed from that bottom-up mechanism. So it's really exciting, really exciting to get these measurements. And Betapic is a fascinating system with multiple disks. So between the inner planet C and B, there's a disk of dust and material there. And further out from B, there's a there's an even larger two-component disk. So there's so much more that is happening in these systems that we have to learn. And it's great that we can get... The way that you describe that resolution is just freaking insane. And it's, a, it's great that we can get that resolution to really pick apart these, these dynamic nurseries. So do these observations then bode well for... Um for the Roman Space Telescope. I know a different technique, but if we can do it on the ground with interferometry, I guess that bodes pretty well for observations in space as well. Yeah, I think it's, it's a different technique, right? So so yeah. Nancy Roman's going to be using coronography, which is where you actively block the light of the star. Whereas with a 100-meter baseline in inf- interferometry, I don't think they even they even cared about the star, right? Their resolution was so good they can just say, "Just point it away from the star, we'll be fine," kind of thing. <laughs> so um, it's a it's a whole different ball game when you've got a hundred meter effective mirror, right? But um, so we don't need any space based coronagraphs at all now. <laughs> We still need space-based coronagraphs, I think. Yeah, so one of the things there that is our limiting factor isn't, in fact, the the spatial resolution that we're getting from these massive interferometers. The only reason we could use this gravity instrument for beta pick C, B, and PDS-70 system is we knew the planets were there and we knew where to point them. So remember mm. that pointing space is so tiny. The, the precision is so small. We need to know exactly where to point it. If we're off by a little bit, we're not hitting the planet at all. We're hitting some empty space next to the star. So it's not useful for discovering these directly imaged planets. And that's where these coronagraphs still are the only way that we can do that. Right, so I think it's my turn to introduce a paper for this month's Exocast. And one that I've picked is on simulations of Guess what? Clouds and hot Jupiters. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Love- oh, never at all would I read a paper about clouds and hot Jupiters, but I did for you guys. <laughs> so this one is uh, this one is 3D simulations of photochemically generated haze in the atmosphere of the hot Jupiter HD 189733b. And this was presented by Maria Steinruck and team um, earlier in around October, November time, I think. So our our listeners will no doubt be familiar with the hot Jupiter 189733b. Um, It is the second transiting planet that was measured 
And it's been the subject of so many different studies for its atmosphere over many, many, many years. Um, I'm going to call it HD189. And I'm going to mention here that there is, in fact, a star called HD189. And we, we use the term HD189 to refer to HD189733. But there is a HD189. And if it does have a planet, I will apologize to it in the future because <laughs> it has been co-opted. So I just wanted to say that once and for all, because I don't think we've ever said that before. But it's I been co-opted. Okay. So um, I'm just going to call it HD189 for time. Um, <laughs> so when we when we think about HD189, the main thing that has been observed for this planet is that if you look at its transmission spectrum, so the light filtered through the planet's atmosphere, we see that it's incredibly scattering. It has extremely enhanced scattering in the blue compared to the red. And you can think of this scattering in a very similar way to the Earth's atmosphere scatters light. So the Earth's atmosphere, the nitrogen in the Earth's atmosphere scatters the blue light and not the red light. And this is why our sky is blue and our sunsets are red. This is a very, very similar thing that we're measuring in the atmosphere of HD189. But HD189 is a giant planet. Its atmosphere is dominated by hydrogen and helium. The scattering is not due to nitrogen molecules like it is here on the Earth, even though the colour of the sky would be blue and the sunsets would look red. It's a very different process going on. So the question that we have here for this planet is what is the process that is going on in the atmosphere that is causing this incredible scattering of the blue light? So one of the most likely scenarios for this is the presence of small aerosols in the atmosphere. So think of like a fog or smog, very, very small particles in the atmosphere, which have a similar effect of scattering light. So in this paper, what, what Steinruck and the team did is they used the Spark MIT GCM. That's a global circulation model. It's a 3D model of the planetary atmosphere to see if they could work out if these aerosols that they could correspond to what is being measured in the in the transmission spectrum so the observations of this planetary atmosphere can we make a model that allows us to replicate what is what is being seen so what they did here is they used photochemical clouds so aerosols these are more like smog than they are like fog so these are generated by solar energy impacting the atmosphere and causing chemical reactions so this is material like soot um, or hydrocarbons, things like that in the atmosphere, rather than something like water vapor or some of the clouds that we've talked about before, these, these corundums, these magnesium silicate features. So it's a very specific way of forming those clouds. So what they did is they injected the presence of these hazes on the day side of the planetary atmosphere where they would predominantly be generated. So where that sunlight's coming in, they injected the presence of these, these hazes and they did it over multiple different sizes to see whether the size has an impact on what you would measure and how it would distribute around the atmosphere. So with a GCM, a global circulation model, they then were able to allow the planet to just go on and exist and see what happened to those hazes that they'd injected into that atmosphere. 
And what they were looking for is how do the winds distribute that material around the planet from the day side? How does the temperature change the way in which those materials maybe build up and settle through the atmosphere? So we're talking in transmission, very high up in the atmosphere, very low pressures. As they drop down to higher pressures, we won't see them anymore. And how does this recycling work? So what they found was that the haze was not actually heavily distributed around the planet by the atmosphere. The small particles that they injected, so 30 nanometer particles, were more concentrated on the night side and the morning terminator. So the region where the day meets the night is a ring around the planet. That's what we measure in transmission. And then they they found that conversely, the larger particles, so these ones bigger than 30 nanometers, they were more concentrated on the day side and the evening terminator where they're able to kind of settle faster and grow more. And they looked at this whole distribution from their 3D simulations. And in our transmission spectrum, we kind of sum everything up. We get a global average of what's going on. And what they found is if you take a global average of the things that are going on, these effects actually tended to cancel each other out. So this haze that they injected in the planetary atmosphere from the one one limb to the next, so from one side of the planet to the next side of the planet, the effects that they have are different on the spectrum that you get. But if you combine them together, they cancelled each other out and you didn't see the effect of these hazes in the atmosphere scattering that light in the way that we would expect them to. So actually, I got kind of ending on a little bit of a downer here is that the models that they they created and the models that they used didn't were not able to replicate the spectrum of this scattering light but that in itself is a hugely important scientific result and it's a thing that we don't say nearly enough ever really is that we've tested a model now that has set up a certain series of parameters and asked the question is this what's happening the answer is no, this is not what's happening. And now we've ruled that out, that's really useful. We don't need to consider that anymore. But what we do need to consider is a number of different things that we might have been missing from that. So one of the things that we need to try and understand that was not included in this model is feedback mechanisms. So if you put soot, if you put haze, if you put smog in LA, it changes the temperature profile, it changes the feedback mechanisms in the atmosphere, how that material reacts to different wavelengths of light. And those feedback mechanisms and how they affect that profile in the atmosphere were not incorporated into this study. This was just looking at the dynamics and where those particles might be transported to. So that that's one of the things that they suggested at the end of the paper they need to do and they need to think about. And I know that that's something that the team um, have been saying that they want to be doing as well. They also want to look at these different types of, of particles. So the particles they injected were, were specific sizes. So the question that we have is if you put a distribution of sizes, does that affect where they might be? Um, and, I, and I want to kind of finish on saying that, that Steinruck themselves pointed out that there's still a lot of work to do um, and they're really excited to continue looking at this and the possibilities that hazes could be causing this scattering and this extreme atmosphere still cannot be explained fully by a lot of the models that we've got. So there's still a huge amount of, of things to explore and I think it's a really positive note to end not only a, a paper on but also a discussion on that paper that 
this is really interesting and we're still learning and still trying to understand. But the fact that we've got these 3D GCMs, we've got 3D models of these planets that we can just inject whatever we want into the atmospheres and see what happens. That's pretty amazing to me still. And fundamentally important work to, to be ruling out. As, it's as important to be ruling out as to be ruling in, <laughs> I think. And <laughs> right. as you say, it's something that generally, yeah, we maybe have a bit of a bias against the null results. And there's a whole journal dedicated to null results. Maybe we should popularize them a little bit more. But it's fundamentally important to know. It's not a, it's not a null result, in my opinion. It's a result that proves that there's other mechanisms at work here. And that in itself is, is an important finding. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And, and we got a huge amount more to learn about these clouds. So uh, I, w- I joked at the beginning, but I will keep bringing them up. <laughs> well, I was hoping they'd be ruby clouds or sapphire clouds or whenever you mention clouds in, in hot Jupiters, I'm always like, well, what fantastic gemstone it, it should I imagine <laughs> is is precipitating out of these clouds today? I mean, this is this is one of the things. Those, the those condensates, that those form via the natural kind of saturation of that material in the vapour. So mm-hmm. as you increase the amount of, it's the same here, as you increase the amount of water vapour in the atmosphere, it then starts to rain. So this is what these condensates are. Whereas what we're talking about is these hazes, and these are more akin to, as I mentioned, LA smog. Very much. That. That's a that's yeah. a photochemical haze. It's a horrid thing. You, you fly down it. into LA. Yeah. We saw it earlier in 2020. 2020 was a fantastic year <laughs> of, of of smog when those fires in California and in Australia. They created huge amounts of these hydrocarbons. These are hazes. These are essentially what they're injecting into their models. These hazes change the way light is filtered. And you can see this in the pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge, for example, famously almost always covered in fog. It's got gorgeous mist channel down that valley. It was red. The sky was red. It changes the way that light interacts and that is what we're trying to understand from these models how is light interacting with these different particles and where in the atmosphere do they need to be for them to present in the way that we measure them it was a good learning experience to be within that fog or within that smog i should say but i don't know if the lung damage was worth it <laughs> <laughs> i i, again, I didn't smell I very do nice. not i think this this model uh once again is another tick box on the don't go to hd 189733b yeah. it's popular on exocast but not for habitability reasons let's put it that way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so is this the famous hd 189 slope which has been there for about 15 years this like extremely steep blue wood slope that frederick oh, Pont don't measured. say stuff like that 15 f- years <laughs> No, but it, I mean, I'm surprised that oh, it's not been explained. That hurts. Right? It's yes, not it, yeah. I mean, it, it hasn't been explained in the way in which we want to kind of bring together all of these different aspects. So this is talking about an incredibly complicated 3D circulation model of the planetary atmosphere. We can use toy models to explain it and we can say, oh, we think it's this and this acts in the same way. But if we then put that into a model of that planet as a whole 3D object, which is what they actually are, does it still hold up? And and those are the questions that we're still trying to answer. And some of that comes from us not necessarily understanding how to put all of those feedback mechanisms together. So that is not simple. 
And those things do take a huge amount of time. So I'm not surprised that it's taking us this long to try and understand it. And there is a little bit of controversy with this scattering slope that some people think that it might be the star itself that's causing it. So sunspots on the star cool down the surface of that star and that can introduce factors into that. That's one of the theories behind it. Um, a number of other papers have looked at that theory and said, yes, that might explain this part, but it doesn't explain this part of the spectrum. So there's still a little bit of us trying to understand both observationally what we've measured and whether or not some of the physics that we know can kind of show that. And one of the things from these 3D GCMs is not just what you're injecting, but where it ends up. And that's another thing that we still need to understand is where and how the winds on these planets distribute that material is going to be really important for, for the types of regions that we're summing up to assume for these observations. Has, has that really steep slope, which is obviously still kind of a mystery, been so reobserved? So we see, we see that, that steep slope in 189 consistently through multiple different observations and multiple different okay. instruments. But we also see a slope not necessarily as steep, but much steeper than expected in other planetary atmospheres. It is not the only planetary atmosphere that okay. has significant amount of scattering. It's definitely got the most. It's definitely the sharpest in terms of the scattering. But it's also one of the best measured because it's so easy and nice to measure, which means that the measurements we've got of it are so much more precise but we've got a number at least three or four other planets that have unexplainably steep slopes and that leaves one final paper to discuss so andrew what, what have you brought to the table this month well i'm sorry team I've, I've kind of cheated a little bit and i don't have a single paper but i have a series of papers about the same discovery um which actually provides quite a nice little neat narrative arc both for the discovery and also for how kind of how science is done um okay i i'll, I'll stop being so nebulous and say that I'm going to talk about the discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, which came out in a paper uh, in September 2020, led by Jane Greaves from University of Cardiff and a team. It's entitled Phosphine Gas in the in the Cloud Decks of Venus. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with phosphine, myself included, up to the point of this discovery, um, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's a, a minor constituent of the of the Earth atmosphere because it generally doesn't exist in, in oxidized atmospheres. Um, and it's been proposed used as uh, you know a potential biosignature for for astrobiology um, as it doesn't seem to have uh, a source that isn't biological in in how it's in how it's formed now there was some measurements done uh, of Venus's atmosphere using the James Clark Maxwell telescope and the Elmer telescopes in which they uh, in which the team reported uh, atmospheric uh, pH3 or phosphine detection around about 20 parts per billion um, which is, is pretty high. Uh, it's, it's very much less than that in, in the Earth's atmosphere, it's my understanding. But the important thing about this, or the, or the kind of takeaway, uh, point was that the, the, the pathway, the, the, the mechanism by which phosphine was being, um, replenished in that atmosphere was, uh, according to the paper, unexplained. So they did an exhaustive study. They looked at the steady state chemistry. They looked at the potential photochemical pathways we know about. Um, and because we don't know about any other abiotic production routes, um, they, the, the, the only thing that was left basically was life. And I must commend that, you know, the paper itself definitely worth a, a read. Um, of course, I, I would always recommend reading our sources and just don't go, go on what I say. But they were very, they, they hedged their bets. You know, they didn't say we've detected life. Uh, it wasn't nearly as sensationalist as maybe yeah. reporting about yeah. it was. Um, but there were some issues with the paper that I think were, were justified. Uh, and one of the issues was how they, 
remove the residual ripple, the effect of the telescope, the effects of the atmosphere of the planet from, from the data they had. There is some, well, we'll get into it, but it's possible that maybe the, the methods that they used was maybe slightly overfitted. But we'll, we'll get to that. So this paper came out in September. Um, and it cr created a bit of a furore because this is a big, a big result, potentially a biosignature from our next door neighbor planet, um, which really came out of the blue. I don't think a, not a lot of people were expecting a biosignature from Venus anytime soon. Um, and I was actually in a, in a conference that morning as it was being announced and we delayed, I think, the beginning of the conference so we could all just talk about this, this discovery. We had Stephen Kane, of course, who's been a guest on our show before, who knows a lot about Venus and he was very excited. He wasn't on the paper, but he was excited about the results. So for me, that's sounded that sounded like a good result if Stephen thought it was good then you know maybe there's some weight to it but as the story developed there was some yeah there was some uh there were some issues that were that were spotted but there was also some supporting evidence that was presented as well so a few weeks later a paper came out in uh, nature matters arising which is if you're not familiar with the publication process it's kind of like a, a short uh, short response quick turnaround uh, for like uh, very temporarily important uh, discussions. So let's put it that way. The peer review process can take some months. So this is for for stuff that's you know really needs to be out there so that we can all be discussing it you know, in the conversation. Um, and this paper, um, Rajesh Mogul and and others looked at data from 1978 or from the you know, 70s, 80s, looking at the Pioneer Venus Large Probe Neutral Mass Spectrometer to see if any data from that mission, the Pioneer v Venus mission, um, could support this discovery of phosphine. Did they see that phosphine in in the the old data and they did they did they found um they found some evidence for for the phosphine in the in the in the venus data from the 70s 80s but they again couldn't determine what its origins were they could just say that there was a detection so that in itself with com combined with the original discovery paper was making this look was making this look pretty good uh, then in October so the next month a, a paper ar arrived on the archive and elsewhere again to uh, to nature matters arising and also personal communication to the authors. So uh, the paper was called uh, No Phosphine in the Atmosphere of Venus and was led by Geronimo Villeneuve from Goddard Space Flight Center and others. And again, as I mentioned, published in Nature Matters Arising. They were pretty, uh, they were pretty anti the discovery. Let's put it that way. Uh, they determined that the, the results could be explained by, um, maybe not considering all the potential photochemical pathways that were in there and with potentially maybe overfitting, uh, the, the, the polynomial to remove the ripples. Uh, apparently it was a 12th order polynomial. And if you do any statistics, you might know that that is, uh, yeah, that's a, a bit of a problematic, <laughs> um, level of fitting to be, to be incorporating. Now, I'm not familiar with how this work is generally done. Um, and of course, I'm going to go with what the experts say, but to me, that did sound like it was potentially overfitted. Yeah, so that, that was brought up first in a paper that was put up on the archive and submitted by Ignis Snellen et al. Um, from the ah. Leiden group, okay, questioning, questioning whether or not they'd overfitted the data. Um, and that came out, I think, a few days before the Villanueva paper. Um, I apologize for missing that. In, and in the figures, I mean, it looks relatively convincing. I mean, I think there is there is a, a clear dip at the phosphine point, mm -hmm. but the significance is what's the important thing because for a detection of such magnitude, you know, such an important uh, detection of a biosignature, yes. you're going to want a 10, 20 sigma um, kind of threshold before you believe it. And yeah, and I think that they were... I think they were very clear in the discovery paper that this yes, was true. tentative. Yeah. This was something that, you know, there's no point us sitting on this. 
we should tell people this is what we found and see if we can get a better detection of it. And we don't have the instruments right now to get a better detection of it. So can we use this evidence to try and understand even more about the planetary atmosphere? So I don't think it was wrong to publish it in the first place. No, no, yeah, I think you're And right. I think the original publication is very, very clear about it and, yes. and it explores very interestingly lots of different uh, aspects of this phosphine. That, again, Andrew... No one's heard of before or cared about. Well, Andrew hasn't heard of it. Doesn't mean that no one else has. <laughs> yes, that's true. It's, it's clearly, um, well, it's important certainly for the phosphorus cycle uh, on Earth, but you know, maybe that's one of the more minor biochemical or biogeochemical cycles that we don't consider as much as we should. It's important um, for penguin poo. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the Villeneuve paper made some good points, uh, and I think you know they they addressed some of the controversies that that needed to be addressed by by the authors. There were some good points there. However, the way that perhaps it was originally posted on the archive, there was some language in there that was a little controversial, incendiary, uh, perhaps, and included the suggestion that perhaps the paper should be retracted, which is generally not something that that we mention uh, in papers. We don't tell other people usually to retract their papers. <laughs> um, that that was then removed because there was some some backlash uh, into into that that statement. However, the, the 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 science of that paper was still completely valid. So whilst that conversation w- was happening, there was also a statement published uh, online um, by a member of the IAU Commission F three on astrobiology. We're not exactly sure who it was, uh, but that statement was a published uh, apparently published without the full permission of the IAU. And again, the language used in that statement was rather problematic. Um, There was words like concerned, there was ethics being brought up into it. And the point being that the, the the author of that statement didn't consider the paper to have been written in a way that they would have approved. Uh, they thought it was putting too much emphasis on, on, on life. And I think we've discussed this in the episode that that absolutely was not the case, yeah. uh, that, the, that the original discovery paper made uh, every effort to avoid any insinuations like that. And it kind of sounded like they didn't really read the paper. So <laughs> unsurprisingly, that was that was retracted within... I don't know a day. Did you? I didn't even get a chance to actually read the original article. It was. I think it, it was, was up rapid. there for a few days. In the yeah, end. a few days. I oh, think it okay. was uh, a few days because it took a while to track down who and how they had done this. So yes. it turns out that this commission F three for astrobiology has a number of members, yeah. and some of them weren't aware that this was published. Yeah, a lot of them <laughs> responded with, "Yeah, I didn't sign off on this. What? Where's this come from?" So uh, it took a, it took a while for them to track down, but it, the. The thing from that is it took them a while to, to remove it as well whilst they were tracking down what was going on. Yeah, so this is all developing in the back, I guess, and it's um, it can be a little bit difficult to then pick out the the actual science from the controversy here. And it was there was some difficulty in the reporting because of that. But that statement was then retracted. And uh, as of this month, uh, I believe, or maybe it was December, uh, there was another paper from the Greaves team, uh, the original discovery team, um, have another, have a, having a response to the Villeneuve paper, absolutely justified scientific points. Um, and whilst they think that the abundance might be somewhat less, and it could be seasonal, and it could be spatially variable, they do still consider there to be a source of phosphine uh, on that uh, in Venus somewhere that is at this stage uh, uh, un- unidentified. So there's still work to be done. It's maybe not as strong a signal as was originally thought, but there's still something very interesting going on there. Unfortunately for us, we have no way of following up on this, <laughs> at least for the next few years. Um, there might be a flyby by um, uh, by Pepe Colombo, I-, I think, might be flying by Venus, as well as Atsuki, mm-hmm. which is currently in orbit but doesn't have a good instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, 
ESA has uh, the solar orbiter going past. NASA's Parker Solar Probe might be able to have a little look at Venus uh, as well. Uh, there is an Indian um, an Indian orbiter planned for 2025, the Shakurian, but that doesn't at this stage have the instruments that might be necessary to measure phosphine. But hey, why wouldn't you put them on now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think this right? is this is really going to spur some new missions or new instruments on these previous missions. And you know, I think that uh, with every good science i think what what you end up with even if the result is uncertain is you end up with the um inertia to push forward and to exactly. get more data right and figure out if it's real or not yeah and i was focusing on the spacecraft there but we don't just have to go to the spacecraft to figure out the answer to this it, it's as important to to go into the lab to to you know get a compile our models to figure out if we can explain this you know, abiotically, if there's some pathway we haven't considered yet. As Hannah mentioned in the previous paper, you know, being able to understand what's going in the atmosphere with you know, making artificial spectra and be able to remove those and, you know, just figuring out what isn't there is as important as figuring out what, what is there. Uh, and we can do that on Earth um, and on computers. Uh, so this might not, this absolutely isn't the end of the story. Yeah. It's somewhat the end of this narrative arc. And I wanted to mention it because not only was it, I think, in a way, a very good example of how science can be done within four or five months. We turned that around pretty quickly, but also some of the problems that are still arising, you know, the differences between science and the personal, or maybe the ego and, and how that's, uh, you know, how it makes its way from, from the science to the, the public is, is still a bit problematic, perhaps. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's a, you painted a really good picture of all of what was happening and it was you know when we were in it it was fairly chaotic and yeah like, it felt oh, like okay, that right? well, what, what now and, yeah do we buy some... this do i do i mention it in my in my graduate a lot of this i should say came from if there are any of my graduate students listening they've already heard this because we had a very <laughs> in-depth discussion not just about the biosignature but about how the science was done and you know whether it was done right and how it was responded to and I didn't know whether you even mention it because, as you said, Hannah, at the stage it was still really chaotic. I think, you know, the the Villeneuve paper hadn't come out yet, and I was like, do, "What do I say about this?" And um, yeah, it was in the middle of it. Um, was yeah, it was tricky. It was a lot, and it was also really exciting. And it yeah. was a way that we could have showcased just how we can work together and and try and understand things. But unfortunately, that didn't quite happen. Maybe this will be a recent enough and, and, you know, loud enough discussion that will help set the way we treat people and scientists and the way we treat the work that is done by that. So maybe maybe it's helpful. Um, but I'm excited for the ability to just kind of detect different things at, at very different levels in atmospheres and trying to understand where they come from. And phosphine is, is something that is, yeah, not many people have heard of, but it's really important. Otherwise, we wouldn't have immense line lists and information on it you know somebody spent their entire phd creating the models of this molecule to understand how it interacts with light and those models were the ones that were used to try and detect this so it is clearly important and we do need to understand a, a huge range of different things that maybe we we haven't even tried out yet they've gone back and looked at data from god knows when right what did you say it came from uh, well, it was from the Pioneer mission, which launched in 1978, but I don't know exactly when the data was collected. And it's but, not you know, the first kind 1780s. of evidence that we have where we've found something and then we've gone back and looked at old data exactly. and gone, it is there. Hang on. What can we learn from this? So I, I think it's really, I think it's really yeah. cool. If yeah. we could get our, our hands on some Venera data, right? Those are the Russian <laughs> yeah. 
landers that then melted on the surface. I don't know if they would have actually <laughs> given they, us any did useful. They, did anyone but... check if they had phosphine in them? Because, you know, maybe... They... The <laughs> landers? You think yeah, the landers were the... carrying a packet of Oh, yeah, if they had a balloon of phosphine poop. that just, like, just got released... That would explain everything. That's the source. It's the tardigrades on the moon the all Russians, over again. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I must say the Grease paper was very good in that not only did they consider abiotic pathways, but also the um, the extinction time in the atmosphere. Like this needed to be replenished. That was the key. It wasn't just a detection of, but at the levels that they originally thought, it would have to be a constant source. And mm. that's that's the biosignature side of things. Not only is it there, and it shouldn't be there, right? Why isn't it oxidized? But it should also have been uh, already been scooped up by all the CO2. Um, so that in itself was another reason why this was considered to be a good biosignature. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic point. Exocast. Okay, well, thanks very much, Andrew, for summarising what was probably the most interesting paper for the last six months, I think. So, I mean, it's all going downhill from here in the news, right? We, no, we'll have to see. No. Hey, fingers crossed for another exotic biosignature from a neighbouring planet. You know, out of the blue. Right, don't forget to check out our other episode from this month, in which we asked what exactly is the point of the habitable zone. And you can also, as always, get in touch with us uh, at exo underscore cast on Twitter, um, you can find all of our episodes on our website, exocast.org, or on iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcasting apps. Uh, plus, you can now buy merchandise um, with Exocast logos on in our Threadless store, which is at exocast.threadless.com. Or if you just want to help us cover our minimal web server costs, then you can contribute a few dollars at buymeacoffee.com slash exocast. Um, but for now, thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Test K-Ops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening. Exocast.